lives, our jobs, our future. Make your vote count. You deserve better. Four yes, one no. Most of us would have come across these slogans over the past one week or so. The focus of our country has slightly shifted amongst the ongoing pandemic to the upcoming general elections 2020. While there might be differences in opinion within the general community, whether it is the appropriate time to hold the elections or not, we have to accept the fact that it is happening and polling day is this Friday. So then you might ask, Gerard, what is this podcast all about? We have had enough political debates and constituency broadcasts over television already. Why must we listen to this? Simple. We are not here to support any side, any particular party, or take sides for that matter. We are here to discuss about certain issues that took place over the last five years, analyze certain policies uh, proposed by the various parties, and just give our thoughts and views of how these could affect us and our future generations to come. And with that, I would like to welcome all of you to this special midweek episode of Gibberish with Gerard. Today, to discuss about all these things that I had mentioned earlier, I have three wonderful guests with me. First one being Vignesh, who might not need introduction as he was already part of my third episode and is extremely famous on social media right now. Secondly, we have Pooja, who's entering her third year in NUS studying life sciences. And finally, we have Irving, who will be reading law in NUS this year. Hello guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's a huge honour to be here. Yeah, guys, so, alright. Before talking about G2020, I think it would be good to discuss what has happened since the last elections, which was 2015. So let's do sort of a recap, okay? And before we get to the ugly side of things, let's talk about the great things that's happened in Singapore. So let's start it off with you, Vignesh. What is the one thing that has made you go, wow, no, that is a solid change? And that is what we needed as Singaporeans. Um, Alright. Uh, personally, I think uh, we've had a lot of educational reforms over the past five years, especially under the guidance of uh, Minister Ong Yi Kung. So... Basically, I really agree with his uh, points on um, inclusive growth and how education can be a great leveler for, to bridge uh, the current income inequality that we have. And uh, so, maybe just to give a rough recap of what happened. Uh, basically, Minister Ong Yi Kung and uh, the Ministry of Education uh, rolled out a couple of policies such as um, financial support for Singaporean students at every stage of education mm. as well as increasing accessibility to university education and tertiary education and also emphasizing lifelong learning. Okay. Yeah, I think that, that was quite a good policy rolled out. And then, Irving, uh, what is your the best policy that took place in the last five years? Um, I think the first thing that really comes to mind is how the government has worked towards improving the quality of our workers as well as um, working towards digitalizing our SMEs. Um, as you know, we have the skills future that is, I think, enrolled in 2015 or 2016, yeah. about there. So um, these allow, these um, measures um, gives people a chance to upgrade themselves so they can find better jobs for themselves. 
mm. and I think second is to um, you know currently currently we're having this um, fourth industrial revolution and it's important for companies to improve themselves to digitalize themselves so that they can be more competitive and the government has introduced you know, several measures for these people to you know, work on okay Puja, what are your thoughts uh, I think the last five years, the government has placed a lot of focus in taking care of our elderly, our senior citizens. They have rolled out a lot of new programs, especially the Merdeka Generation Package, targeted mm. at seniors, especially uh, 60 years old and above. Mm. And I guess that's something that's been increasingly more important because of how big our aging population is growing. So I guess government support is really one of the biggest elements of how we're going to cope with that because we cannot expect every elderly to have children mm-hmm who are going to take care of them all the way and support them financially, emotionally, and physically as well. So, under the different packages that the government has rolled out, one of course being the Medica Generation Package, involving mm. payouts, involving many safe top-ups and other benefits, is one of those ways that I think the government really focused on in the last five years. Okay, yeah, so that's great. And um, if you ask me, I think for me, like one of the best things that happened was all those mega projects. So like, you know, the Joel and Terminal 4. Because if you actually like look at the statistics, right, aviation industry directly contributes to 3% of our economy. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's excluding like those jobs created, all those things. Just projects alone is contributing to 3%. And the construction of Joel has like, you know, paved way for close to like 10,000 new jobs for like Singaporeans and PRs. So I think that has been a very successful project. You know, I mean, if not for COVID, I think we would have break even with the cost in like uh, three to five years. So I think that was a really good uh, project that was done in Singapore. And uh, yeah, so I think that was one of those special moments for me in the last five years. Okay now, so let's move on to the more spicy stuff. So what's something, what are some of the you know, questionable or debatable things, you know, like events that occurred in the last five years that you know, made you think very hard for like this coming election? I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind would definitely have been the reserve presidency because mm. that was one of the most controversial decisions that the, pre- that the government made and it is something that affected all of us, not just a small group of people, not just you know a certain class, it affected every Singaporean. Mm. So I think that is something that really um, made me think a lot about what it means to be a Singaporean, what it means to... Uh, live in this nation where it's supposed to be multiracial, but what are the measures in place for us to maintain that multiracialism? Is it mm. right for us to reserve a presidency for a specific ethnicity? Because mm. if that is the case, then we will be discriminating on the grounds of ethnicity <laughs> to a certain extent. But if we don't, then the government's, um, the government's stand is that if there is no representation of a particular race for a period of longer than five years, Mm-hmm. then we want a representation from that race. So mm-hmm. to them, it's like we want to have a head of state who embodies our characteristics of multiracialism. But I think that's also where the problem lies, you know, like how far is Singapore willing to go to protect these values? And mm-hmm. where is the line between what is right and what's wrong? So I think this is something that was certainly um, controversial, something that I don't particularly have a fixed stand on, like it was wrong or it was right. Mm. But I do think it's something that Singaporeans need to think about. It's something that has no clear-cut answer. 
and there are a lot of things underneath it as well. Like when it comes to talking about race, how do we, how do we know who is of particular race? How do we define Malay or Indian? How what are the standards there? Because what we saw when it came to the reserve presidency was that there wasn't a fixed set of guidelines, but rather there was a committee formed to deliberate on what was the race of a particular candidate. So these were systems in place that effectively ruled out certain candidates and led to an eventual walkover for the election. Mm. So certainly changes at these junctures would have affected individuals running, it would have affected our ability to vote, and eventually affected our president, yeah. who is still you know in, in office. Mm. So all these things are really issues that we should think critically about because it, it, it consists of what we believe in, what our values are as Singaporeans. Yeah, that's what I believe was the biggest, what spicy thing <laughs> have <happened. laughs> Irving, you? Yeah, I think my point is actually going to be really short. It's about the hike in our goods and services tax. And mm. I think most of us know that there was supposed to be an increment from 7% to 9%. And it was supposed to take place this year. But um, thankfully, because of the COVID situation, um, this measure has been delayed. So I think many Singaporeans are happy about that. Mm. But um, currently in this coming um, election, um, it's a huge point of contention from yeah. you know, the, for the op- opposition party because uh, many of them have um, highlighted that this is not something that they want to see in the coming years. Mm. And I mean, it's um, as a regressive tax, it's definitely going to impact um, people from a lower um, social economic background and it would definitely place a you know, bigger financial burden on their um, family budget. You know, that mon- amount of money can definitely go into something more useful to improve their life, you know, education, healthcare. And yeah, it's definitely something that it's, um, Singaporeans would take note about. Yep. Maybe we'll talk about it more later. Yeah, sure. And uh, so Vignesh, what's your? Well, um, I've got quite a, quite a few gripes with the Singapore government. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I, I guess I'll start off with the progressive wage model. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially like uh, like throughout this election, uh, even Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan talked about how the progressive wage model was more so of um, a solution to the minimum wage. But if you look carefully at the progressive wage model that was um, proposed by uh, the Singapore government, I think in 2017 or something, it mm. essentially acts pretty much as a minimum wage, except that it's uh, like is just based to on based on one sector. So in this case, um, it was concentrated on three sectors: uh, security, cleaning, and landscaping, right? Mm. So, uh, so like all the gripes that P- the PAP has about a minimum wage, uh, minimum wage laws, like from the Workers Party and uh, other and SDP, like it doesn't make sense because there's sort of a disconnect in the sense that they don't recognize that their own policy in itself is a minimum wage. But of course, I, I think um, while this is the case, it's more like, it's more of a maybe bad PR, like um, on behalf of mm. PAP in this, because if you were to critically analyze the policy itself, I think um, it sort of makes sense that you don't have a standardized minimum wage for like across the board, across, across the board mm. right so uh, 
and I'm and I'm in support for that. That makes sense. But you gotta be transparent. Like yeah, yeah. And that comes to my second point. So, um, yeah, as you all know, like there's a severe lack of freedom of speech in Singapore, and I think there was quite a few statistics which came out recently regarding uh, press freedom in Singapore. Like it was ranked like one hundred fifty fifth. But of course, this comes as no surprise because um, one fifty one. One fifty one. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. I. Thanks for the correction. So. Yeah, and we all know that Singapore reacts quickly to um, criticism from journalists and does not hesitate to sue them, right? So, yeah. I think, like, let's take the case of Jolovan Wam, right? So, Jolovan Wam, uh, he was sentenced to jail on the premise that he criticised uh, a court ruling. So, not one court ruling per se, but he uh, mentioned that uh, Malaysian courts were more... Um, impartial as compared to Singapore courts. So, uh, what happened was was crazy. Like, uh, Jolovan Wam was then fined like uh, 5k, and then uh, thereafter he did not recognize the validity of the punishment that was uh, meted out to him. And then he said, and then the Singapore government automatically gave him a one week uh, prison sentence for um, basically saying that the court was illegitimate, I guess. That, that's, that's their point of view. Mm. But I think there should, be, there should be a place where we, we should be able to talk about our government institutions and our policies like freely. Uh, and this comes from a place of patriotism because I feel that I have a say in... I, I want to have a say in like the, my future and like the systems that govern us but if I don't have a say and if I'm silenced then I don't know it just doesn't make sense to me like mm. yeah that's where you're coming from yeah and also um, about uh, rent relief for tenants uh, so basically just a quick recap so uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, rent relief for um, other stakeholders like uh, SMEs uh, MMEs so on and so forth but there hasn't really been any discussion for about uh, rent relief for tenants specifically. And this comes in light of uh, COVID-19. So you have got uh, many people uh, like foreclosing and unable to pay up their loans and also unable to pay up their rent on time. So uh, just some quick, st- quick stats, quick math. Uh, <laughs> it's about 5,200 households in Singapore who live in... Uh, subsidized uh, rental flats and to qualify they need $1,500 or less and although Singapore doesn't exactly have a official poverty line so uh, there's this uh, social work professor called Dr. Irene Ng she estimates that uh, close to 12% of households live in absolute poverty and 27% of households live in relative poverty so I think that's that's mind-blowing right yeah. and um, yeah as I said earlier there was no support at all for uh, tenants, uh, for residential tenants. There was support for commercial tenants in, uh, in the sense that they got a uh, moratorium on their rents. They got, um, they, 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 were only allowed, they, were, they only had to pay uh, rent like after four months or, or something like that. So, okay, let me, let me be specific. Um, 
the only support for our SMEs on rental costs post circuit breaker include property tax rebate for non-residential properties, government cash grants for SME tenants in private properties. So, uh, yeah, so they have put in place regulations that would allow businesses to defer contractual uh, obligations like uh, paying rent or repaying loans, but no such thing has been done for residential tenants. And these guys, these, not these guys, these people are the ones who are at the most risk, right? They, mm. they face uh, domestic violence, they face, uh, there's a lot of cases where uh, they have to choose between medication and paying rent. I think that's unacceptable in mm. Singapore. It doesn't make sense. And then, um, yeah, so moving on, uh, the last point I would say that uh, the last gripe I had about the government was, would be probably about, be about sustainability, but I, I'll be talking about that later. Okay. Actually, Georgia is bringing other like, um, issues with um, what um, this uh, general election brings about. I think for me, it'd be like, just closer to the elections was our COVID-19 outbreak. So if you, if you think about it, I would say this was a rather controversial one, but we can't really judge it because the whole pandemic is still ongoing and you can't really like pinpoint any like particular reason. But if you look at the numbers alone, like close to 94% of our current total cases, including imported cases, were in foreign dorms. So I think that brings like a lot of questions on you know, how these dorms were managed, like how uh, the conditions in which they were living in. It brings a lot of questions regarding that. And I'm not so sure, you know, like what exactly the government was thinking while they were like addressing such issues because back in two thousand and twelve there was a similar massive dengue outbreak in like uh, in the dorms which are located in the northeastern uh, side of Singapore. So in those Pungolia area. And there was this massive outbreak and they had to like deport all those foreign workers back to their home countries. So I think with like all those lessons in mind of see how like these, um, the living conditions within the foreign dorms could be a place where, you know, if a, if a virus or something spreads, it's going to be a massive outbreak. Mm. So I think that's there might be sort of a small miscalculation in like the government strategies to curb the infection in Singapore, mm. and I feel and that's something also the opposition parties are really talking about. So I think that was something that you know, I had issue with personally in the last five years closer to like the last two three months okay so now let's move on to like the main chunk GE 2020 so why do you think this GE 2020 is important and like what does it exactly mean to us you know Pooja you can start it off uh I think from the perspective of politicians it's all about how we're going to get through this whole stretch of COVID-19 Mm. And I think that's very fair and very true as well because COVID has affected jobs, it's affected livelihoods, it's, it's affected a lot of uh, issues for every Singaporean, not just certain classes, but every Singaporean has uh, been affected by COVID-19. So I think it's natural and it's practical for uh, the government to want to focus on COVID-19. And mm. all the parties have brought across um, issues that they want to discuss, things that they want to implement with regards to it. But I think that this election, for me at least, also involves a lot of other issues. It mm. should not be so focused on how we're going to get more jobs full stop. Because it, mm. this election is not just for the next stretch 
focused on COVID. It's about yeah. more than that. It's about the next five years and beyond because mm. the next five years is not isolated. It impacts the next 10 years. It impacts the next 20 years. Mm. And we cannot just put all our other issues on hold. We cannot put our education system on hold and say, oh, it's perfect. Let's leave it like that for the next five years. We mm. have to constantly improve it, constantly see what's wrong and always make improvements to our existing systems no matter what. And that's why I think this election is important because an election is a platform for differing opinions to discuss what's best, how mm. to help the country move forward. And that's why the need for an alternative voice is so widely discussed this election. Yeah. And we've seen so many discussions, the biggest quote being giving the government a blank check. So yeah. it's, it's a matter of arguing, can we trust the PAP to um, be their own um, check and balance when we're talking about different policies and making changes? Or do we need a capable, reliable opposition to be that check and balance? Mm. And I think that's a very important question that citizens need to ask because when we wake up on 11th of July, we need to be ready for either a Singapore where we only have one party in power or be ready for a Singapore where there could be a significant louder voice in mm. parliament, although not loud enough to overcome the supermajority, mm. but it's going to be a louder voice than we are used to. Yeah. And every Singaporean needs to decide if we want that Singapore or we want the one-party Singapore. And both have their pros and cons, I guess, but it depends on what the individual believes is the best step forward for our country. And that's why I think this election is really, really important for us, for my generation, for my parents, for even my grandparents as well. Mm. Yeah. Wow, um, actually Pooja had the... Uh you stuck quite a bit of my points. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think really just to add on is um, both Vignesh and I, we are first-time voters for this upcoming election and I think one huge concern that we would probably have is you know, our future, our future in you know, this current uh, recession, in this current uncertain, this, this period of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and I think what we really want to have is some sort of um, political and social stability in the upcoming years. I mean, definitely what Pooja said, you know, we have need to have the considerations to the other aspect because politics is about, you know, really improving our country continuously. We can't just push it aside and wait for, you know, the whole COVID um, crisis to end. It's mm. something that we have to deal with concurrently. And I think, yeah, that's something we're looking out for, you know, who are the right people to lead us in the future? Um, who, is, who is able to, you know, give that kind of um, inspiration and make that right decisions for Singaporeans? And I mean, definitely, we, we can't say that, you know, the opposition party or the current um, PAP party, uh, sorry, PAP party, the current, um, the, the incumbents, yeah. Um, we can't say that, you know, both parties, uh, which one is actually better, because this is the first time we are meeting such a crisis, mm -hmm. and no one knows how we are supposed to do with it. But, you know, definitely having this open space in the form of this um, general election is where it's good for us to... You know, exchange our ideas um, in a civilized way so that we can decide better um, who should be our leaders for the next um, few years. Vignesh? As for me, I would, um, I think the major concern in my mind would be uh, sustainability. So, uh, the last 10 years have shown that climate change is happening now and it's happening rapidly, and uh, there's been reports over reports over reports from like uh, organizations like NOAA, NASA, uh, that confirmed that 2010 to 2019 was like the hottest decade uh, ever. I, I mean, since record keeping uh, began like one, 140 years ago. So, uh, 
like the 10 years that have passed have been marked by uh, huge massive climate disasters like you had uh, cyc- even in the past year alone we had cyclone Amphan destroying um, Bangladesh we had we are still having uh, the locust swarms from um, from Africa coming into uh, Pakistan coming into India and invading all uh, the agricultural land and redestroying it that so that's still happening and of course we, we also have uh, COVID-19 which was actually you, you could say was uh, exacerbated by uh, the climate crisis mm. like inclu- like talking about when we talk about like increasing increase in temperatures like you have more greater incubation periods mm. so on and so forth so uh, and if you if you go closer to home right there's the Singapore's rainfall trend has been going upwards so um, I think uh, annual rainfall has trended upwards at a rate of about 9 millimeters uh, per decade since 1980. So with heavy rainfall over such a small period of time, of course, you, you run into uh, other issues like oh, flash floods, then do, do we have enough infrastructure for that? Mm. And uh, beyond that, like for example, people in the East Coast experience climate change in a very uh, tangible way. Like they have... Uh, I think I read uh, that there were a lot of dengue hotspots that were appearing in the east and like vector-borne diseases were also, um, the prevalence of vector-borne diseases was increasing with the high temperatures, right? So uh, basically what's happening is that we have, we have a history, like the past 10 years has been marked by climate disaster and we've not been doing anything at all. Okay. I... I would at least I would say that we've not been doing enough. Mm. So, uh, our another quick statistic for you, like uh, ni- our uh, CO two emission uh, per capita is about um, nine point six six five tons mm. per person, right? Yeah, so capita, yeah. if you if you compare that to the median uh, CO two per capita mm. emission. That's uh that's about like uh, two point two point three. Yeah. So you see that there is a huge gap right there, mm. and we are not we are not moving fast enough. Although we do have the economic resources to move in that direction, and yet we say that oh no, uh, economic su- uh, sorry environmental sustainability is not a bread and butter issue. It's it's a common rhetoric used by politicians to detract away from the fact that they are still in cahoots with mm. enterprises, <laughs> right? I mean, think about it this way. The, if, like, uh, okay, another, another quick statistic for you. 38% of our uh, CO2 emissions come from, uh, I think, energy, mm. uh, energy, producing, industries. En- energy producing industries yeah. and 40% from... Um, Fuel. From f- okay, yeah, from that. So, basically, we have... There we have a lot of industries that are really polluting our environment and we are not controlling them, we are just siding with them. And what the government has done so far is say that no, uh, we as common Singaporeans, we are supposed to take a major share, we are supposed to shoulder the burden of uh, like uh, reducing our uh, CO2 emissions by doing stuff like the three R's and um, 
what uh, using public transport, which is, I agree, it's uh, it's useful, yes, but it's not enough if you consider the proportion of the industry industrial pollution. So, I think that's what I would like to see at least in the next ten years, because this these this ten years will be the defining moment for humanity as a whole. So we need to solve this right now. And we need to do our part. And if we don't do whatever we're supposed to do, there won't be a new world for us to live in, right? Yeah, alright. So moving on to our next segment of this podcast. So we are going to talk about like five big policies that were like um, generally like like the opposition parties or like PAP, anyone. So these are the five like main talk, uh, talking points that was brought uh, across for this general elections. So I think it's also like more that these are policies that will affect us more or less. So we're going to talk about the five big ones. So starting off, we're going to talk about lowering vote age from 21 to 18. Hmm. So I mean, this doesn't really affect the two of you, but it kind of affects the two of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, uh, so let's start off with Vignesh. So what do you have to say about this? I am definitely for the lowering of the voting age from uh, 21 to 18. If you look at um, ASEAN countries, or if you look at countries as a whole, like around the world, many of them have indeed lowered their voting ages from 21 to 18 already. So yes, some people might argue that no, it might, it, that's not a salient point to consider because uh, because of the fact that you you can't just transfer policies over from uh, another country to here. But I think at the heart of the matter is that there is a perception that uh, that like youth in Singapore are like ill-informed and they are immature and they can't make uh, good decisions regarding the future of this country, which I think is false. I mean, uh, we have a lot of active youth voices in our youth community and we have been making strides and uh, like talking about uh, talking about politics or talking about the environment we, we've been making huge leaps and bounds so I think it would be wrong to say that the youth are not uh, mature enough to be considered to be voters and then if you look at uh, let's say the criminal aspect um, if you're above 18 you can be tried uh, as an adult for in most cases and actually sorry in all cases so if you can be tried as an adult in criminal cases why shouldn't the same law be applied to voting rights also in the sense that shouldn't you be considered shouldn't you be considered as uh, an adult with uh, the same voting rights as everyone and also if you consider the uh, the fact that uh, Singaporean boys like uh, above the age of 18 generally have to go through NS so mm. uh, we put this unfair expectation on uh, on Sing- on Singaporean males that they have to serve their country they have to be able to hold a gun uh, before they get the right to vote which I think is wrong because if you look at South Korea South Korea also has national service but their voting age is 18 and mm. so why why doesn't why is there a difference there? So that's my opinion. Okay. Lovely. What do you have to say? I think that's 
Oh, my my school of thought is definitely um, different from Bignesh. My I I generally agree with um, um that the age of twenty one is a suitable age for us to make the decision to decide who should lead us in our country. And I think my main point of um, contention would be that adulthood is not really um uh it's it's not a a a thing where you know you reach a certain age and then. Um, all the rights, the privileges are being, you know, just suddenly given to you. I think adulthood is a process because, um, I mean, to be fair, we all make stupid mistakes in our life, and I think you know having that period for us, um, from turning from eighteen to twenty one, really helps us to find ourselves, um, understand who we are, and understand the world around us. And I think we can see that in our system, um, in our legal system. You know, the minimum age to consume alcohol is eighteen, but you know, to make better choices in life. Uh, not to make better choices in life, but to make um, legal decisions in life, like you know, um, um, creating a will, or um, you know, having the the right to vote is set at the age of twenty one, so that we you know, for all of us who you know might have gone through national service, um, university, or have some sort of relevant work experience, we'll be able to understand uh, the different facets of life beyond schooling, and I think this this um, additional experience is important for us to understand that there's so much more going. Um, not just in Singapore, but there are a lot of other factors that um, affect Singapore um, internationally. And I think that um, setting the age of um, 21 or setting age of 18 is um, ultimately it just boils down to uh, maturity. I think mm. that's what Vignesh said. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, there are a lot of studies that shows that maturity is something that is, you can't really determine at what age. Um, each of us um, develop in terms of our mental capacity or you know um, our um, physically yeah. yeah and um yeah my point is that um have being able to be to, to setting the age at 21 definitely gives a higher percentage of voters who are ready to make the um, the logical um to, to have to sorry to to go through all the research to make like the the logical decisions of mm-hmm. Um, who should be in charge of us to, and who should be, um, um, sorry, and which party in, in this case of the election is you know, ready to take Singapore in the next step forward. Mm. Okay. Julia? I think both Vignesh and Irving have brought up very valid points regarding the voting age. My stance is that I support the reducing of the age to 18 years old. And my reasoning for that is because I believe that there are policies that are debated during elections and brought up by different parties that ultimately affect the lives of 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and everyone who is within that range but they're not able to vote. So um, take me, for example. I'm 21 this year, but I'm not able to vote because I am born after the cutoff date. But at the end of the day, the policies that are going to be voted in are going to affect my life. Because in the next mm. five years, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to join the workforce. Mm. And I, my life will be affected by the policies that come into place in the next five years. Take my age out of the picture. Take a look at a 19-year-old, for example. In the next five years, the next, that 19-year-old is also going to graduate and join the workforce. So it's, it's, it's not a case of they, they have nothing to do with the policies, so they are not voting. They do. There is an mm. effect. And I think that um, it's to assume that uh, 18-year-old may not know enough about the policies because maybe they haven't joined the workforce yet and they don't know about the realities of life. 
that is something that I think can even be applied to a 70-year-old voter. What does the 70-year-old voter know about the current education system and how it affects children who are in secondary school or in primary school? Because they are so distanced from the issue. But that doesn't mean that their opinion is not valid. Everyone in Singapore has a different stake in the issues that we raise. Youth is a whole stake on its own, which is why every party has a part of their manifesto that focuses on the issues of youth. But youth are not able to vote on the issues that matter most to them. And I do believe that even if we don't reduce the voting age to 18 years old, maybe we just make it as long as you're 21 by the end of the year that the election is carried out in, which is what they did with the solidarity payouts. The solidarity payouts were given to everyone who's going to be 21 by the end of 2020. So it can be done. It's just not being done. But I think it's something that really should be considered because it's very... There's no basis on which, or at least I'm not aware of the basis of which a cutoff is made on who can vote and who cannot. And I think it's always best to have a broader group of people represented because at the end of the day, it's a country for everyone, not just a certain group of people. And I think the other argument would be that, oh, 18-year-olds or younger people are not, don't have the knowledge to make informed decisions about politics. And the question we should ask next is why? Why do 18-year-olds not have enough knowledge? And I think it goes down to the fact that we are so distanced from politics until we actually have the responsibility to vote. Which is why so many 21-year-olds now, it could be the first time they're even talking about politics or Mm. reading about politics. Mm. For me, this was never an issue because I have been reading about politics from young simply because my family is very open about their views. And I've heard about what's happening, I read about what's happening from a young age. So, even though I'm not a voter, I keep track of what's happening. But for a lot of people, this is not something that they are used to, or not something that they talk about on a daily basis. And I think one question that we should ask, which is something that Raisa Khan also brought up in one of her tweets, is should there be political discourse in schools? Mm-hmm. Or for youth? And it is something that doesn't have a straight answer, but I do think we need to ask ourselves, if we want our youth to be able to vote at 21, they're spending the bulk of their life before that in schools. So is it fair that we only expose them to anything related to politics once they're out of where they spend most of their time in? Or should we at least spend a proportion of national education focused on what policies are, how policies affect or disadvantage certain groups of people? And I think that's a conversation we really need to have because we talk about educating about the environment, we talk about educating about multiracialism, we talk about educating about everything, but what about politics in itself? Why are so many young people so clueless about the state of politics in Singapore? So I think with all this said, I definitely stand for reducing the voting age because it would really push for other other parts of the issue to open up and for people to really start talking about things that really matter. Actually, I, w- I would like to add on what Puja mm. said. Um, I mean, I I completely agree with uh, Puja's points about uh, the the lack of uh, political, uh, the lack of ability for our youth to discern what is uh, right or wrong in their own sense. Because in in a way, we don't actually foster critical thinking in our schools. Although, we do talk the big talk. We mm. just say that, yeah, our schools are teaching us to be critical thinkers. But really, what does it mean to be a critical thinker? Is to make criticisms based on the evidence that you have. And in our schools, already, you can see that we are already bound by uh, the certain uh, educational structures that are already present to not stray far away from the political ideologies that are permeating through 
the education system. So that is also one thing to think about. Is like um, how do we make our youth more politically potent in that sense? Okay, so you're saying like if the voting age has to be reduced from if it's to be reduced from twenty one to eighteen, then there should be some kind of like mm-hmm. political engagement mm, in yeah. schools. So that so that they have they can make a more informed decision. I mean either way, I think there should be room for our youth to engage yeah. in political and discourse. Like uh, mm. which I don't think there's as much room mm. in the current state of affairs. What so, do you think of it? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree the the point on having that structural redevelopment of our education system in order to um, help ourselves be of a, of a being a greater critical thinker in society, not just being bounded by what is being taught in schools, what is being examinable. But um, I think for this point, I would really have to stand my ground on on the fact that being the, at the age of eighteen, um, I would say that for um, many of us, we at, at least at, for at this current point in time, we don't have that um, capacity to make um, such informed decisions. And I think your points of having that restructural um, uh, in our education system, um, even if it's being enforced, it would probably take another like ten to twenty years in order for us to see the effects. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then. Having um, to lowering the, the voting age to eighteen um, within the next five years would not have a significant impact in the quality of decision making of our political leaders, mm. and I I think that um, personally for me I think voting is something that's very important, and I'm I'm sure it, it means a lot to you, um, especially for you, Ignatius, um, yeah. seeing how you're able to vote with me. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's something that I think it's um, that I can see that you know you have put in a lot of research into it. And at the age of 18, I think that um, being having gone through the education system um, that we have gone through, I don't think at the age of 18, I would even be bothered to read about mm. politics. I'll be busy studying for my exams. And I think that's the case for most or many of the Singaporeans here. They'll be either in you know, your polytechnics, your JCs, or other forms of education. And at that point in time, would they really care about what is needed and what is necessary for society? So I think your points are definitely very um, valid and it's, it's, it's very substantial. And I think it's something that we as a society should look into. But I think before we look into that, we really have to ask ourselves the fundamental ideas of what um, voting is. It's about having and making the quality choices after you know, having that logical, um, having the research being done and having some sort of um, ideas and logic to back those ideas up. Mm. So you're saying it's like more of a long-term thing. Uh, I, I mean, my, my point is, um, I agree with um, their, their, their ideas that they have of you know, lowering the, 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 the age to 18. But yeah, I would think that it's uh, at this point in time, within the next decade or two, I think it's very hard for us to see the effects of um, having um, quality voters at the age of 18. So do you support the idea of like, if we were to change the structure of our educational system right now, to include more of these like political discourse or engagements, would you be more supportive of that idea? Yeah, I would say I'll be supportive if only this was something that was, uh, you know, something that is uh, more planned in the long run, mm-hmm. and not something that's just, um, you know, okay, maybe in the twenty twenty five elections, then you know, the voting age is at eighteen. That isn't something that I would be um, happy to see. Okay, fair point. Yeah. 
Okay, so moving on to our second point, right? Uh, so some of the opposition parties, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, like SDP, suggested that they want to abolish GST for the next one year. Mm. And like other parties, like Workers' Party and some other parties said like, but we should maintain GST at 7% and not increase it to 9%, which is, of course, suggested by PAP. So Puja, what do you think about, or the idea of abolishing GST for the next one year? Do you think it is like a viable idea? Uh, I'm not completely against the uh, the idea of uh oh sorry abolishing GST. Oh yes, that is a no go. I mean, we have already spent so much money of our reserves this year to mm. get us through COVID. Um, to think that we can you know not have GST for a year. It's, it's, I, I don't think it's going to add up because we still need to have a source of income for our spending. And mm. I, I, I do not believe that abolishing GST is the right way to go because it's, it's, it, I just, we need money to be able to spend. Mm. There's so many parts, sectors of our economy that rely on government support, whether it's healthcare, the elderly, education, subsidies, so many things. I, I just don't think it will work out to not have GST. Yeah. Okay, then... Vignesh, what do you think about the 9% GST idea? Do you think that would be like a burden to the society, especially those who are like in the bottom 30 to 40% of the socioeconomic scale? Yeah, I believe uh, GST does work as a regressive tax, right? Yeah. So any increases in uh, our taxation will then be a, a greater burden on uh, people from uh, lower income groups because of the fact that they have to spend more, a greater proportion of their income on uh, paying the tax as compared to uh, people from uh, high income groups, right? Yeah. Exactly. So there is, there is that component. Mm. But at the same time, I agree with Puja in the sense that I don't think that uh, we should be abolishing the tax. That doesn't make sense fiscally to me because um, I think uh, GST makes up quite a bit of of our income so i i do believe that uh singapore i mean i don't agree with sdp in the sense that we should be abolishing the tax but i would say uh, i agree with james Lim, who's uh who actually managed to uh, address this beautifully mm. also so you believe in like sticking it with seven percent yeah sticking it with seven percent so like let me just quote okay yeah, so sure. he said in the near term, a GST increase amounts to contractionary fiscal policy. If you believe that this could be a prolonged recession, a premature tightening of macro policy would short circuit a nascent rebound. And the shock may even send the economy back into recession. Mm. Right. So that that is the I think that's the main that it can be summed up in that sense itself. Because with an additional contractionary fiscal, fiscal policy, policy you drag your economy back into recession. And of course, you also have the long-term effects of it being a regressive tax. And I, I, I think what I should mention is that he has suggested alternatives to uh, the GST, like, for example, um, raising uh, net returns, as well as uh, directing uh, some of our land receipts uh, directly into our spending for education and healthcare. Okay, so actually moving on, right? I did some math regarding this like whole increase in GST uh, thing. So I think I'd like to share with all of you. Yes. Okay, yeah. so here are some numbers, okay? 
So the GST revenue generated in the financial year of 2018-2019 was 11.1 billion. Okay? So, and our Singapore population in 2018 was 5.639 million. That includes everyone. So what we're going to do is going to find out what's the average GST paid by an average Singaporean in a year. Mm-hmm. So we're going to divide the two numbers and we get $1,968.43. So that's for a year. So you're going to find how much is he going to pay in a month. You're going to divide it by 12, obviously. And that's going to make it $164.04. And if you look at the median gross monthly income, right, mm-hmm. of, uh, of a Singaporean, including the uh, CPF contribution, in 2018 was $4,437. So this is actually taken from the Ministry of Manpower website. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to calculate our you know, percentage of income spent on GST, that's going to be 3.70%. And what I'm saying is, okay, this is the percentage, and it could be slightly higher because, you know, like, the children don't pay for GST, you know, and the kind of stuff. And also, we are taking into calculation the, med- the median gross income, so not really your take-home income. Mm-hmm. So, but we're just going to keep it at 3.70% of what, whatever numbers we have. And now, right, if GST were to increase to 9% in 2022, so I'm going, to assume a few, uh, I'm going to assume a few things. So first is our population growth, which is at 1.2% since last year to this year. So we're going to, oh sorry, it's actually from 2018 to 2019. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to assume that that uh, growth rate remains the same. And then we'll increase Singapore's population to 5.775 million in the year of 2022. And um, also I'm going to like uh, calculate the median gross monthly income in 2022. Uh, using the same 2.84% growth rate from 2018 to 2019. So that will make um, the average or the median pay received by Singaporeans to be 4,800... Sorry, $4,962.61. Okay, so the GST average... So you're going to take 9% GST, which will amount to $210.91. And the percentage of income spent on GST is going to be 4.25%. So, if you take this 4.25%, and the earlier that I mentioned, right, 3.70%, a 2% increase in GST is actually only translating into a 0.55% increase in your expenditure on GST. Mm-hmm. So, if you put it into perspective, right, in that perspective, do you think it really makes a huge difference in the society? I'm throwing the question back at you guys. Mm. That is, when you put it that way, I would say that, uh, that that's a very interesting point that you actually brought up. But I guess I don't know what to say, man. Uh, I would I, I I would say that uh, it doesn't seem financially prudent for the government because it, actually what you're saying is that they're giving back more money to the the people, right? I haven't get to the point yet. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I just want to jump in here. Wait, you just you just bombarded me with a bunch of numbers, and I was like, I should wait, 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 wait. point. Okay, I mean, okay. So from what you've just said, mm. I think that in numerical terms, it does seem like a very small jump. Yeah. But I also think that um. <laughs> I also think that the people who would feel this the most and this is assuming there are no um, 
GST vouchers or no help to give, mm. which we are talking about later. But yeah. in the event there isn't, then I think the people who feel this jump the most are the people who um, are in the lower income brackets because for them, you know, like it's it's it, it, it matters. Like to someone who's financially comfortable and you have a lot of money, of course a small percentage increase may not really affect you so much, but you cannot put yourself in the shoes of someone who you know, who struggles to earn every dollar and say the same thing. You mm. cannot assume that this small percentage is small for everyone because it's not. Yeah. It's, it's everybody is, exactly. Everybody has their own struggles to deal with. At least mm. that's where I stand. I was actually going to jump in and say what I just <laughs> said. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, I, I would just like to add on that um, initially I was also um, wasn't really that satisfied with the increment in GST. I mean, very superficially, who would want to you know, pay an additional 2% for your taxes? Yeah. But I think um, after doing some research um, and comparing our tax rates to other countries, I realised that actually Singapore has been paying pretty low tax rates. And I think the main purpose of that is actually to you know, attract investors and attract key players mm-hmm. from overseas yeah. to come and invest in our economy. And I um, think just some statistics is that um, you know, most um, GSD um, in European countries are actually above like 20%. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. with um, comparing first world countries like uh, in Europe, Mm-hmm. And to Singapore, right? I think we can really just see that difference, that 30 per, 13% difference. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that really is a lot of um, difference as compared to 2%. Mm-hmm. But um, I think um, comparing to a country that's, uh, I guess, closer to home, Taiwan is paying at a, a tax rate of about 5%. Mm-hmm. And I think on um, at, a, at a first glance, you might think that hey, actually Taiwan is paying less than us. But you know, we have to look at the other forms of taxes that they're paying as well. They are, in terms of... Um, income tax, Singapore is only paying, um, right. the max that we, in the highest income bracket is only subjected to 22% tax. Whereas for places like Taiwan, it's about 40% tax for the mm-hmm. highest uh, income bracket. Mm-hmm. And I think when you put that into perspective, you realise that that 2%, if it's really justified as um, by the government in terms of increasing our expenditure, uh, sorry, increasing our um, budget so that we can improve our other areas of society, if it's really necessary, yes, but I think we should definitely um, take the consideration of those um, who would be affected um, more severely than others. And what would just say those who belong in the lower income brackets. So talki- talking about like the lower income brackets, right? So uh, from not around like 100,000 people in Singapore earn less than 1,003. And I'm using 1,003 because you know, people usually say 1,003 is supposed to be the minimum wage. Know, for like a better living and stuff like that. So we're going to take 1,003 as the cutoff. And so if you do that, right, if you take 1,003 and you assume that they earn 12,000 a year, which is already lower, if I'm taking 1,003 times 12, and if you assume that they're going to spend their entire income on goods and services and they're subjected to a 9% tax, they have to pay $1,080 of GST per year. But if you look at how much you know, like the current uh, government is providing in terms of GST vouchers for the current seven percent GST? Is they already giving one thousand one hundred and thirty dollars per year in the form of GST vouchers, which already exceeds the maximum you would ever pay? You know, if you're going to spend all your you know all your earnings on goods and services, you know, when the GST increases to nine percent, mm-hmm. and also you know I think it's stated in the PAP manifesto that mm-hmm. they're going to give some like six billion assurance package to like uh, help with the uh, help like most households with the increase in GST for the five years and ten years for the lower income households. Yeah. So so what do you think? Like 
about this whole thing? Mm, I think that the assurance package definitely uh, helps citizens accept this idea better. It's mm. something that the government has been sure to be very clear about because obviously in this election, they are the only party that's saying we are going to increase the GST, right? Mm. So, But they have been very careful to accompany this policy with assuring people that they're not going to feel the effects until later on or at least after 10 years for low-income households as, as well. So I do think that it's, it's a good effort by the government to make sure that you know, we protect the interests of those who are most vulnerable. But at the same time, from a layman point of view, I don't understand how the math works out. Because no. if we're going to increase GST and... And pay it out. Yes, it. and at the same time, we're going to take $6 billion and mm. put it into uh, vouchers or helping people pay for this GST, then mm. like, what is the point of increasing GST in the first place? And even if, you know, we are... We, 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 was not going to earn now, then why not just impose the GST increase later on? But mm. I think like it, it probably comes down to um, how the people accept it, how the people perceive it, how to mm. best sell the idea to citizens yeah. and make people more open to the idea. And I guess it, it goes both ways. But again, I'm not, I'm not a financial expert. Mm. So perhaps there's a math behind this that I'm not aware of that maybe one of you might know about. But yeah, I, I, that's my take on it. So I guess you think it's more like you know a psychological move more than like an economic move for like the short for the short run. I mean, it does seem like it because like like what Buja said, uh, like uh, definitely it it definitely helps to uh, like soften the impact of mm-hmm. the tax on yeah. your disposable incomes, right? Mm. But as a whole, I don't know. It seems very iffy that a party that prides itself on financial prudence would just uh, hand out free money like and this is like basic math right you just yeah. you stay on the spot so like they they do have access to these numbers they know mm. that it's uh, this is gonna happen and yet it seems like you are giving more money than you're actually taking so I don't know there's some dissonance I think there. it kind of helps in the long run like 10, yeah. 20 years down the road yeah I guess it would make sense that uh, in the long run yeah you would want to raise the tax because mm. as Irving as what you said like tax is pretty nominal in Singapore as it is yeah. but I don't know it seems it just seems pretty iffy mm-hmm. mm. wait iffy in what sense again iffy in the sense that uh, when I say that uh, because PAP prides itself on mm. financial prudence right okay yet as we just we have just seen earlier they are give, essentially giving out uh, more money than they are making off, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm like, I'm, I'm actually all for welfare. I'm in, I'm definitely all for welfare. Like, I think we should be supporting our low-income uh, households more. And the support that we are giving them is not enough. But at the same time, I think there is some, there is some problem with the math, actually. Wait, mm. I, I just want to jump in. Um, so I think that, that 2% increase would generate a revenue of about, I think, 3.94 billion, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Is it, then the assurance package is about 6 billion. Yeah. Mm. But I think um, with that 3.94 billion, if that money is being reinvested into GIC or into like Tomasek, then in the long run, like maybe like 20, 30 years down the road, that amount can be tripled easily. Mm. Because yeah, with the, with the uh, growth rate of about like 5% mm. per annum, and, you know, with that compounded interest, I think, you know, it's 
um, I mean, mathematically, you will definitely earn more than you receive. Uh, you will definitely earn more than what you're giving out away. Mm, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. I guess that would make sense too. So mm. now, like, where do you guys exactly stand with the GST policy? Do you, do you agree that it should increase 9% in 2022 or 2023? Or do you think we should stick to 7%? But, I mean, I still think that uh, the increment shouldn't be done, like, this quickly because 2022 I believe that the COVID-19 crisis because I, I feel like the one thing that we have been missing out in the conversation so far it's, is the COVID-19, COVID-19. And if you put that into perspective mm. like there's I'm pretty sure like economic outlook for the world as a whole is pretty bleak for at least the next three or four years because if you think about it uh, your cons generally your consumer demand will be much lower than usual because mm. of the simple fact that oh people are afraid and people are uncertain about trading with each other physically and that still is like brick and mortar shops are still a very huge uh, they, they still play a huge role mm. right so if you take that into consideration uh i don't know it doesn't make sense that a gst increase now would so you agree that should be a nine percent? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, so soon. yeah. The decision should be postponed after. Way, the are, way, way ahead in the future. Like after the next elections, in the following one. I think maybe. maybe I think you obviously have fine. to see like the, the 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 COVID situation. Yeah. And how Singapore has dealt with the recession. Mm. I think only once we have really um passed uh, these you know, key events. Yeah. And, and I think then our policymakers would make uh the the right choice of when the increment should happen. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's a bit too early, right? Mm-hmm. Too quick to jump into this idea. I think I also stand with the Workers' Party's stand that we should make sure that we have really exhausted all other options before we decide to impose a GST. And of course, that comes to uh, debating in Parliament and mm. effective discussions about what's best. And I know one of the suggestions that they put forth is really to um, direct some of Singapore's profits from land reserves to... Mm. Mm. Uh, from land sales, sorry, to um, spending instead of putting the whole sum into reserves. So in mm. short, the idea is that we... Reallocation. Yeah, so mm-hmm. our reserves will still grow, but at a slower sure. rate, but we have a little bit more to spend on, mm. you know, spending. Mm. And I think that while I'm not an expert in the field to know if that is a good policy or not, I do think it's something worth discussing because mm. the way I have read about it so far seems like it, it is a possible idea to explore and so far what I've seen the government use to defend that idea is that the reserves are an important source of um, cash for, of money to you know ensure that we don't leave we have something left behind for our future generations mm. but I think the other school of thought is that why do the people in the present need to suffer to ensure that there's so much for future generations why can't we find a way to balance it out such that every generation can benefit from the right kind of fiscal mm. policies and the right kind of like allocation of resources. And I think mm. it's something worth discussing, something worth having, you know, proper good debate about. Okay. So I, I think we had a pretty good discussion about GST. So we can move on to the next one, which is uh, sustainability. So I think we spoke about it like pieces like earlier and you know how climate change is a real thing that's happening right now and why we should focus on it. So let's talk about a bit of like all those sustainability measures that are being like uh, talked about by the different parties in the manifestos. So I think Irving would like to like advise us about that first. Oh, on the different manifestos. Yeah, like how are they trying to address 
sustainability and climate well, change? Well, I think uh, we definitely have to start off with PAP first, right? Mm. And I think um, just to give like some introduction on their um, efforts to 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 support sustainable sustainability, I think first one is um, introducing new concepts of um, sustainable living um, in with um, their HDB Green Towns program. So I think that they're going to introduce things like um, having solar panels on the top of their roofs, uh, more energy efficient um, means of, of um, yeah, producing their, their, their output and, and just honest, and, and just um, going towards a more like a, uh, reducing greenhouse emissions. But, um, and we also I think have a, a plan of um, planting 1 million trees in new mangrove areas to, in order to help to preserve our carbon sinks. But I think generally you can see that, that there aren't really much, there aren't really specified goals that the PAP has set for themselves to achieve. There aren't things like, um, like you know, what Workers' Party has um, suggested, such as, you know, increase renewable energy, um, our, our renewable energy sources to a minimum of ten percent of our energy needs by twenty twenty five. There are there aren't like you know key percentages that the PEP has um, set out in the man in its manifesto, and I think that's um, something that is dangerous in the sense that you know we aren't there, there aren't goals for them mm. to achieve. You you can have um, small steps um, in in working towards that direction, but there aren't any concrete um, statistics or there aren't concrete numbers that they are aiming to achieve in that next five years, and I think. As someone um, who probably would be in this <laughs> in Singapore for maybe the next twenty to thirty years at the mm. very minimum, mm. um, sustainability is something that should concern me and everyone else because it will definitely affect the way of life, and you know having that sort of goals um, is something that I would definitely look out for in in for the in any manifesto. I think just to bring about the um, other key changes is um, the other parties that really bring about um, these ideas of um, sustainable efforts is from the Singapore People's Party, Red Dot United, Singapore Democratic Party, and each of them have their own ways of um, ensuring that we meet our targets of um, or meet their targets more specifically of um, reducing our carbon footprint. Mm. So then, Vignesh, do you think? What do you think about our efforts like up until now? Of course, I don't think that they are sufficient at all. So, mm. um, and this goes back to what I said earlier. Like, uh, we are a country with uh, the economic means to really be able to decrease our carbon footprint, but we're not doing it. Even if you look at our uh, Paris Climate, at the, the aims that we set out for the Paris Climate Accords, um, I would say it's, uh, it's very easy to achieve them because we are already in that position we are not uh we are not like uh ambitious in a sense to to really decrease our uh carbon footprint so mm. uh i mean yeah sure i agree carbon sequestration policies like uh planting more trees uh retaining our carbon sinks yes they are important but we must also focus on really cutting down uh greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions mm. in the now, like right now. So that's why I would say that I, I side on uh, the, like, for example, divestment from uh, energy, from carbon intensive industries and so on and so forth. So I, that, that's my opinion. 
Okay. And Pooja, so what do you think can be done more in the future? Or do you think that any like like any efforts we are doing right now is like not enough and do you think there's room for improvement? Mm-hmm. Uh I definitely think there's always room for improvement. Mm. And I think at a time like this especially it's more important to ask ourselves how how important sustainability is to us because as they have characterized the election is about how we're going to get through the COVID-19 crisis the next mm. five years all about jobs and all that stuff. But where does sustainability fit in in all of this? Mm. Who who are the people who care and who are the people who don't? And should we care or should we not? And I think for me, um, I, of course, as someone who is a life science student, as someone who cares about conservation, who cares about nature, sustainability means a lot to me. But that's because mm. it's in line with my personal values of what you know, I, I find important. Mm. But not everybody feels the same way. Mm. But um, I particularly like how in the Workers' Party Manifesto, they talk about imposing a price on plastic bags, which is long overdue for Singapore, because mm. it, it's something that a lot of, most countries, in fact, I'll go so far to say, have already done. Mm. And it's something that has become, you know, a, a standard practice. Yet, yeah. Singapore still has not done it. And we continuously see people going to supermarkets and dealing with tons of bags, plastic bags. Yeah. It's a huge, it's, I feel it's a huge issue in our country. Mm. And they also have uh, said that they want to ban styrofoam and all that. But I think beyond the policy in itself, I think it speaks volumes that even in a time like this, Workers' Party chose to include things like this that are considered small, but still relevant in their manifesto. And mm. I think it speaks a lot about what they value as well, and about how they're not just going to push aside sustainability because it's not the focus of the election. Mm. It's still something that they have considered mm. and something that they have put in their manifesto because they want it to be talked about. Mm. And even if they don't talk about it immediately, I think that it says a lot that it's, it's there and it mm. opens up an avenue for conversation. And of course, other parties as well have um, raised more um, more ideas and suggestions mm. about how we can tackle sustainability. Yeah. Whereas for PAP, of course, they have their existing policies I think their focus has been and will continue to be on how we're going to deal with the effects of climate change. I think the biggest mm. one would be about how they're building the sea, sea walls mm. and how they're using that to tackle the issue of rising sea levels, which of course is relevant because the sea levels are going to rise and mm. we need something to tackle it. But what about the things that we can still prevent, the things that mm. we can still do to you know, avoid the bigger consequences that are going to happen? I think it's important that we look at that as well. So you feel there's like more corrective measures than preventive measures? Yes, mm. well, I think we should have both. Okay. Then only so what do you think about the general public mindset currently? Like, do you think there's enough focus on sustainability because everyone is just thinking about, as you said, COVID crisis and their jobs? Do you think there should be more attention paid to sustainability? What's your opinion? Well, um, I think that sustainability is something that, I mean, definitely everyone has to, to, to focus on that, but in... But the truth and the reality of the situation is that we have to provide our your, your families with meals every day. You have to provide a roof over their heads. You have to pay for the utilities, the healthcare, mm. the education. Is sustainability something that the average folk would care about? No. I mean, with the rising costs in you know, health, healthcare, education, housing, all your basic amenities, you know, is that, you know, is adding ten cents to a plastic bag something that they want your 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 you want your um your your MP to raise up in, in Parliament? I'm pretty sure that's not in the top of the head. You know, would you want them to introduce you know 
more uh, restructure the education system to provide a platform for students and young people to know that you know sustainability is something that we should all work towards to you know and heavily inculcating that you know the three R's um, like maybe how Japan is doing having like recycling days and you know, once every week and they and you know just having that more um, social awareness to improve their society I think at this point in time it's um, something that many of us I, I would assume that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we something that we wouldn't really be thinking of, but as like I think what Puja rightly mentioned, having that variety of opinions is is definitely important because um, it just brings about a more um, multi-directed um, approach in tackling the situation. Okay, I think we have mm. discussed it quite well. So moving on, we can talk about minimum wage. So I think that's something which is also like being put in the limelight recently after the political debate. And um, so, Pooja, like, would you like to enlighten us a bit more about how, like, whatever you learned in econs in theory, uh. like, what do you think about minimum wage? Will it work out in Singapore? What are, what's your take on it? Um, okay, I'm not going to lie. When I first mm. saw minimum wage, I was a bit sceptical because I think from my limited knowledge of uh, economics, mm. I have learn to associate minimum wage with reduced productivity and increased cost of production for companies and increasing unemployment. Mm. Um, But of course, uh, after reading up more about it and reading up about uh, the stance of Jeremy Slim, someone who, from the Workers' Party, who really advocates for uh, the minimum wage policy, I, I do feel that there is a value in discussing it. There is a value in seeing how it can be applied to the Singapore society. And I think during the debate as well, um, Vivian Balakrishnan compared it to a progressive wage policy. But mm. I think we have to note that the progressive wage policy, um, while it has similar aspects to minimum wage, it is only applied to three sectors, three mm. professions in, mm-hmm. um, in our economy. It's not a national thing, which I think is the biggest difference between the two policies. Yeah. And um, I do think that minimum wage is something worth discussing because honestly, they have been very clear that they are they are suggesting a minimum wage of one thousand three hundred Singapore dollars, mm. and I feel that today in our country the fact that people households are earning less than one thousand three hundred dollars a month, it I don't think it's enough. I don't think mm. that it's enough for people to support to pay their bills to support their family to provide the best for their family because, I mean our cost of living isn't exactly low, um yeah. and there's a, a lot of expenditures and. It, it definitely isn't comfortable for someone to be living under $1,300 a month. Mm. And it's a struggle to make ends meet, that's mm. for sure. So in the interest of making improving someone's quality of life, I think it's worth to discuss the pros and cons of a minimum wage policy. And even if we don't apply a full-on minimum wage policy, it's worth seeing how we can tweak it, like what they did with the progressive wage policy, mm. to see how we can tweak it to better suit and meet the needs of everyone, not mm. just three professions. Mm. And I think it can be done, it just hasn't been done yet, and I think they should discuss it. Okay, then, so what do you think could be like the possible negative side effects of implementing minimum wage? Like, Irving, like, do you have anything to say? Yeah, I think, before I add on, I think I would like to say that I agree with um, everything that we have said, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but I think, really, the, the main issue is really of, you know, what <laughs> branch of Econs and what perspective of econs are looking mm-hmm. from? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have um Jameis from the Workers Party. You know, he's strongly um, he, he has a very strong conviction that you know to 
to set the minimum wage at um, $1,300 for full-timers. Whereas, you know, you have studies from um, things like um, American Economic Review that suggests that um, increasing the minimum wage could, uh, you know, increasing the minimum wage, sorry, would it reduce the employment in the long run. So, mm. you know, you have just these two contrasting um, view mm. of thoughts that really um, um, just makes it, makes it in, an important discussion that, is, that should be brought in Parliament. But um, back to your question of what is the negatives that could come out of um, setting a minimum wage, it would definitely be um, that supposed risk of um, increasing unemployment. Mm. And I think second is uh, not being able to redirect um, the certain money or funds that could have potentially gone towards R&D. And um, that money could have um, potentially increased the output of the company helps the company to um, increase its proficiency to um, get onto the trend of um, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, um, and I think just from a general capitalist um, point of view, it, mm. it really just um, increases their costs and their um, liability to pay for their resources. Okay, so but, but then again, that's a very like, capitalist point of view, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so then, then Vignesh, what do you think about, you know, like from the social point of view, like, people on the ground, those people who do not, who earn like below you know, Singapore's poverty line, do you think there is a real need to increase like minimum wage to increase the quality of living? Yeah, I would, uh, I would side with the Workers' Party on this because, mm. um, yeah, I actually agree with all the points made before by both Puja and Irving, but um, I think James Lim, again, top eight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes! <laughs> Anyway, again, like, James Lim, um, he put this, like, very eloquently. He said that uh, the difference between the PAP and the Workers' Party is that the PAP sides on the side of capital. Mm. So, essentially, um, making sure that we, the support, supporting our uh, capitalist uh, ventures. So, uh, basically, a top-down approach. Whereas, uh, wor- the Workers' Party approaches it in a different way in the sense that it's more of a bottom-up approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, supporting our workers such that uh, we can have uh, greater consumption from uh, our workers. So, actually, um, also to point out, I, I think I would like to address Irving's point about uh, economic, uh, about, well, the economic uh, repercussions of uh, minimum wage. Because... Uh, if you take the U.S. for example, there have been many uh, cases and there sorry many case studies saying that uh, there that a minimum wage has actually no or rather negligible impact on unemployment in the long run. So there there there, there are there are quite a few studies which uh, propose that. And also yes, taking into account that you can't exactly transfer uh, one policy from one country to another. Um, I also agree with Puja's point that there should be some space to at least discuss this in Parliament. Because, mm. yeah, honestly, um, I would say the lower income, people from the lower income groups, like from the bottom 20, 20, 20th percentile, like, like mm. that, that group, has been re- like really neglected over the past few years. And that includes senior citizens, that includes my, uh, marginalised communities, that includes people who live in uh, rental units. So I I would say that 
if we were to increase, if we were to impose a minimum wage, uh, I would think that there will be actually greater consumer expenditure. So greater consumer expenditure means, well, greater GDP, right? But I have to cut you here, right? Yeah. The thing is, for the bottom 20% down, yeah. if you're going to impose a minimum wage, isn't that good? So we're talking about unemployment. Is yeah. it going to directly affect the bottom 20% down more than the rest? So you're saying that, um, so you're saying that essentially uh, alongside with like if you're going to impose a minimum wage, yeah, you're not going to assume that the entire okay. Then in that case, that is going to a thousand three, right? Because if a company decides mm-hmm. to retrench people, it's going to be the bottom twenty percent. Of course, I'm I'm not saying that um, a minimum wage is a dual end all. I'm saying that mm-hmm. it should be accompanied with other policies that also help uh, structural stuff like structural unemployment and but isn't like, that what the current government's already doing? I would I don't think so actually because. Um, Alright. <laughs> okay, so, right. But isn't that what the current government is already doing? Like, I think PF- I think PFP has focused a lot on uh, job creation, right? And like increasing like people's skill set, you know, with the skills future and stuff. So do you think that is a more viable route to increase their wage instead of going through the minimum wage route? I'm saying I, I'm I'm actually proposing that we go both ways. Why can't we go both ways? Is that it, it, mm. one doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, right? We okay. can go both ways. We can we can have a minimum wage. We can also be able mm. to like increase the standards of living of our of those who are most marginalized. Why that doesn't have to be a disconnect over there. So you can see. So you are saying both can be. Yeah, but the only to, the only yeah. way that this would work is if we have some discourse in parliament mm-hmm. and we do need voices <laughs> we do need voices <laughs> who can discuss this and to a very large extent <laughs> okay all right yeah. so final thoughts on minimum wage what do you guys think there's room for debate i certainly think that there's room for, for debate on this issue Okay. Yeah. We, we are definitely not experts on, on yeah. economics or, yeah. or policy making so mm. but I think the general consensus cons, cons, <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah, the first is just really affecting my train of thoughts there but the, the general idea I think is that mm. um, we definitely have to weigh the pros and cons of um, whether we are like what Vignesh said um, which, which side we are mm. on you know supporting you know the mm. um, you know the capital side of things or the social side of things and mm. you know just it's important for you know our future policy makers to weigh these options very carefully and yeah um, you have, you have yeah, to save myself yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty much <laughs> alright so I think we'll move on to our next point okay guys so uh, let's move on to our last point which is quota policies in uh, housing right so let's start off with puja mm. um, so there's a lot of talk about like, racial quota mm-hmm. Like uh, when, when it comes to like uh, getting a, a BTO flat or anything mm-hmm. in the public housing. So do you think that policy is still mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. relevant in the current day and age? I think that, okay, for, to start with, I think the policy was a pretty important policy when it was introduced. Mm. I think the idea of ensuring that our housing estates had a fair distribution of races was important when Singapore was first starting out. Because if we hadn't done that, then we might have ended up in a situation where we had you know, different racial groups living in their own parts of Singapore, which would not have been good for cohesion, right? But I think that now, fast forward 
back here, right where we are in 2020. An unintended consequence of that policy is that we ha- it has resulted in minorities finding it a lot harder to sell their HDB flats when they do decide to sell it because they're only allowed mm. to sell it to um, their own race, right? Yeah. So that I don't think that it's an evil policy that led to this. It's just, like I said, an unintended consequence. So mm. I think that brings us to thinking about whether do we really need this right now. Do we still need a quota in our housing estates to maintain our racial harmony? Because we have come very far from mm. when we when the policy was first introduced to now. We have we see cohesion in schools, we see cohesion in workplaces, we see diversity everywhere. Yeah. And I think it's 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 not true to say that, you know, because we have uh cohesion in HDB estates, we have this cohesion now, uh, mm. as in like in the moment. Yeah. I think that now the diversity in HDB estates plays a very small role. Um the bigger role would be schools and workplaces. So I think it, it, it it's 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 worth relooking at the policy and seeing if the benefits of the policy still outweigh the cons or whether the effect it has on minorities now is actually more damaging than the policy than having the policy than without the policy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so Vignesh, what do you think about it? Like adding on to her point. Because now there's more interaction outside of home, right? And mm-hmm. we have workplace, schools and stuff. Yeah. So how so do you still think this racial quota like fits into the picture or do you think that could be some small tweaks to it. Mm-hmm. Like, do, do, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I mean, like uh, what Pooja said, I, I think I totally agree with uh, the sentiment behind the policy. It, I think um, creating, uh, or avoiding rather, those uh, racial en- enclaves was a huge point in the right direction, huge direction, huge step in the right direction, <laughs> in the sense that, um, in, a, in a sense that we could have a more integrated society and mm. yeah, and especially if you, you can recall like uh, social studies or history, like 1963, 1964, it was like a really tumultuous period for uh, Singapore in that you had the racial rights going on yeah. and there was a lot of racial tension. So mm. this uh, was a good long-term policy to sort of like integrate Com- back mm. into the community. But at the same time, I mean, I think I've, I've had personal experience of this. Like, my friends mm. weren't able to sell their property very easily. And I think you, you could say that if you think about uh, asset liquidation, it's harder for minorities to get that uh, liquidity, mm. like, more easily, right? So, you, you there is a point to make in the sense that uh, the discrimination that minorities face... Uh, it, it could affect them. They're, they're definitely um, like, for example, if I wanted if I wanted to buy a new house and I was still restricted by the fact that I couldn't sell my o- old house, like that affects me. So mm. I would say that it's we have to discuss this in parliament. Mm. But I would be keen on uh, looking towards uh, solutions regarding this. But also, I will, I just I just be clear. I think that uh, racial harmony and racial tolerance is definitely not talked enough about. Like, mm. we, there isn't enough dialogue or discourse in Singapore mm. in the sense that we do have a lot of cases of casual racism. Yeah. I mean, you have faced it. I have faced it. You have faced it. Mm, you not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we... But I would say that 
we have come to a point that we need to address this. Mm-hmm. We need to move forward. Mm-hmm. And we can't just hide behind a curtain or uh, like we can't just say that it's not there. Like we are yeah. post we are a post racial society. Because yeah. that isn't true. Mm-hmm. So we need to address that. But we don't have to address it through this. So that's that's my opinion. The housing policy. Yeah. Okay. Uh so Irving, right? The question I have for you is uh, I think Workers' Party, they kind of like su- uh, had this suggestion of uh, lowering age limit to get a two-room BTO flat. Mm. So do you think is it important? Because I think that particular uh, suggestion was aimed at, at like youths and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what is your opinion on it? Yeah, I think um, back to the previous question, I was definitely not in any, any position to comment on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But I think, yeah, um, thanks for crafting this... Um, small segment <laughs> <for me. laughs> yeah but I think um, at the way we look at things HDB is definitely uh, public housing yes yeah. so what Bignesh has said and mm. back in the 1960s it was a quick way to you know have cheap affordable housings for people to start their families and I think that's the main direction that um, the policymakers are taking you know we have subsidies for um, buying old flats, um, mm. sorry, resale flats, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's also subsidies provided if you stay close to your um, your parents. Mm. Um, and that, that, okay, it only happens in a situation if, you know, you are married to someone mm. uh, legally and you're in a position to purchase a flat. And I think it's, um, in my opinion, I think it's a, some sort of, you know, social engineering in some sense. Um, in, the, in the sense of that they are trying to promote a lifestyle of, of, of building a family unit, staying close with your parents, um, having your own kids, and I think um, all the policies are generally building up towards um, supporting that kind of lifestyle. Mm. But whereas for people who choose, a, a, I would say, a non a unconventional way of life, um, not unconventional way of life, sorry, <laughs> but a, a, less, a, a less common um, way that the, mm. of, of life, of, of choosing, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, my mind's a bit confused. <laughs> yeah, but um, choosing to stay single, mm. um, making their own choice, um, it's definitely hard on them that you know they are getting penalized for not being able to purchase their own flats, and, and I think this is really heavy on them, especially um, with the increased pricing in houses yeah. um, in the past um, few decades, and mm. I think workers' parties' suggestion to reduce that age limit for singles from thirty five to 28 to um, for applying for BTO flats I think it's something that can be definitely looked at mm. but um, uh, yeah I think it just really goes down to the consideration of um, of that trade-off between um, building that family unit or supporting everyone in our community mm. and I think that's a decision that, um, that fortunately that I don't have to make <laughs> yeah yeah so I think that was a good point. Yeah. And I think with that, we have pretty much come to the end of this segment where we discuss like the top five you know, talking points among our generation. So moving on, let's talk about how this GE 2020 is shaping up. So I think there's a lot of points to uh, discuss. Mm. And let's start off with the role of NCMP. Because honestly, I've not heard of that term like before. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it just came about like recently when they you know, started throwing this stuff. Oh, you know, actually we don't need opposition parties like MPs to be elected. There's this thing called non-constituency member of parliament, which is the NCMP. So how do you think the current government is trying to use 
uh, NCMPs, you know, it's like a strategy to get a strong mandate, you know, that's, that's what they're going for. Mm. And like, so what do you think, how effective is the role of NCMP? You know, how, like, how much do you think it's of a political strategy rather than doing it of goodwill for like actual, you know, like debate in the parliament? So what, what are your thoughts on that? It's like open to the ground. Okay, I think I'll go first because uh, Gerard, you brought up about how you you didn't hear about NCMP until, uh, yeah. until this time, right? And I think it's important to note that the biggest difference in NCMP from the last election and now is that now NCMPs have voting rights, which was the, yeah. which was a very recent constitutional change. Mm. And I think because they now have voting rights, um, the PAP has marketed NCMP in a way where it's exactly the same as an MP. So the idea is that you don't need to vote for them, they don't need to win, and they'll still get in. Mm. And I think that on a pragmatic, from a pragmatic point of view, I don't think it's the worst policy ever. My, my opinion is that it's not mm. the worst policy ever. Because um, it is inevitable that most, or a number of opposition candidates are going to lose. But mm. there's also a very high possibility that there'll be very small margins in a lot of cases where they do lose. And we mm. saw that in the previous, previous elections election. as well. Yeah. So there's a very you know, high possibility that we're going to have these candidates who were very close to winning, but they didn't. But at least they can still speak in parliament and you know, use their voice, use their, their values for something mm. better. So it's not the worst policy. But I think that what is problematic about this policy is how the government has used it to swing votes to their side. I yeah. think in a, in that sense, it's it, they've used it as a tool to mm. convince voters that you don't need to vote for the opposition for them to be in parliament. Mm. And I think that that is not the right way it should be because to change the constitution and to have the NCMP is one thing, but to then use it to your advantage, then I wouldn't say it's democratic anymore because yeah. um, because it, it gives voters the false perception that NCMP mm. equals MP, but you definitely cannot say it's the same. And yeah. like we've seen countless, yeah, we've seen countless articles talking about how like, um, you know, at the end of the day, NCMPs don't represent a constituency. NCMPs they don't, don't have access. Well. Exactly. They don't mm. have access to people and everything. And I think mm. one article I saw already summed it up nicely. It was that the opposition is in parliament to represent the voices of the people. But mm. if you don't have a group of people you're representing, then what is your voice? What, where yeah. is this voice coming from? Mm. Because we don't want an opposition who's just there for the sake of objecting. It's got yeah. to come from somewhere. Mm. And I think that's what NCMP lacks. And it's something that people should think more about and not just, you know, equate it to being the same. That's my point of view, yeah. I think it's a marketing ploy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, straight up. Because uh, you, you use the argument that, uh, yes, even without, uh, e- even if we don't vote for opposition uh, members of parliament, parliament. Yeah, you still, you still mm. get some say in parliament. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, let's do the math, okay? 12, you have 12 NCMPs, 105 seats in parliament. Mm. 12 divided by 105 does not equal 33%. So yeah. really, I mean, they, do they really have a say? <laughs> uh, mm, Especially if you think about uh, voting being on partisan lines mm-hmm. a lot of the times. So that's my take on it. It's as simple as that. It's just a marketing ploy. <laughs> really? Uh, I mean, like, after what they said, I really have nothing much to add on. But uh, um, I, think, I think the main concern for me is really just knowing the difference between an MP and an NCMP. And then just using that information to discern your, on, on your choices of who mm. you should elect. 
Yeah, I think that's the only thing I would say yeah. for this. So we agree that it's a good policy, but it shouldn't be used as mm. a political strategy on, to sway the votes and stuff. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's the general consensus, right? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's something that has also not been talked about by the government, is that even if you want to be an NCMP, you need to secure a minimum amount of, amount of votes. Yeah, if, yeah, I think. If nobody in the GRC is going to vote for you, then mm. it's it's you're not going to get NCMP anyway. But that's something that they've left out of their discussions about the issue, mm. which I think, you know, if you want to give the story, you should give the whole story, right? Because mm. a lot of voters, they, they don't... I mean, maybe not a lot, but there are voters who will not do their own research because some people don't have time for that at the end of yeah. the day, right? And who might just be like, oh, got NCMP, no, we don't need to consider. But there are all these terms and conditions, there are all these things that you need to consider on the whole as well before making our decision. Mm. Yeah. I think actually I got one more point to add. I think yeah, sure. Puja mentioned like the opposition is like the voice of the people in parliament. But I think it's really I think that's that's a point of view definitely. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also up to your your listeners or viewers mm-hmm. to discern what the role of opposition is mm-hmm. in, in right. parliament yeah. in a greater sense. So I mean it's it's based on whatever perspective you're you're holding from that mm-hmm. makes you decide on how important the NCMP role is to the opposition or how ineffective it could be or how effective it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, on that note, Irving makes a pretty good point yeah. because if one views the opposition as merely being a check and balance mm. that, and that, you know, your point of view is to just have an opposing voice... Then the NCP, NCMP will do Yeah, it might actually serve your purpose. In terms mm. of voting for policy, maybe not, but in terms of speaking up about it, it, mm. it might. So, yeah, Irving makes a very valid point about that, yeah. I think also we need to take into consideration that uh, yes, there are PAP members of parliament out there, like right now, who are actually doing a pretty good job. Like let's take for example, MP Louis Chua. My God, he speaks for every one of the issues with such passion and it's amazing. And it's unbelievable. Like if he was running in my constituency, well, I'm sorry, opposition. I gotta vote for him. Man. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't want to take away... Th- I, I think we should be we should mindful be, yeah. of the fact that, yes, a mem- PAP members of parliament can also be a voice for the people. But mm-hmm. right now, it comes down to what... You, you've got to decide for yourself. Do you want, uh, like what Puja said, the check and balance? Or do you want... Some, something else altogether. It, it, mm. It's up to you, right? Yeah. Okay, I think that's enough of NCMP. Mm. So moving on, um, do you think there's like a fundamental underlying issue with the way elections are called for in Singapore? Like, and do you think the matter of you know, gerrymandering with how the GRC and SMTs are allocated? Mm. What's, what is your take on that? I don't know. I feel it's a very interesting one. Well... I I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> well, let's be clear. The ELD, uh, the the Department of yeah, Elections, yeah. is directly under the Prime Minister's office, mm. right? Yeah. So in that sense, the Prime Minister has full discretion of when to call an election and mm. when not to call an election, and also even talking about the drawing of boundary lines. We need to talk about uh the privilege or the ability to have that uh, electorate information from the previous election. So essentially what they're able to do is use uh, voting information and appropriately divide up the districts such that there are more districts which will have a greater share of um, basically uh, PAP support. 
Mm. So that's 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 gerrymandering for you. Mm. So that that's what's happening. And beyond that, it's clear that the way elections are held in Singapore is is very unfair. Like there isn't any. We are allowed to change the constitution when and we when we please. I think there's something wrong with that. I mean, mm. let's took let's take a look at like uh, countries like the US. Okay, so what they do. They pride on they pride they take their constitution like very seriously and they reject any notions of changing their constitution because it is based on the principles of their country their founding fathers. But we don't have such a thing here. We can just change our constitution when and uh, when we please, and I, that's that in itself is wrong. So like let's talk about the NCMP. So when they feel like it. They've got a new policy, mm. NC, this NCMP policy, so that oh, we can say that yeah, you know what? If you don't vote for me, if you if you don't vote for opposition, it's still okay. I'll give you a voice. You know, it's some yeah. it's things like that also that you've got to take into consideration. Mm. So that this is what I feel about elections in Singapore, and also, um, there is also that fixed time period thing that we have to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there isn't a fixed time period between. Uh, the previous election and a current election, and uh, an election can be called at any time in between. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I think I've said enough. Oh my God. What do you think about GRCs, Pooja? Like, do you um, what do you think about the GRC system in general? Do you think we should do away with it, or do you think it's a good one? I think that um, the GRC system it was implemented with the intention to have a minority representative right mm. in a in a group of people who can protect the interests of the minorities so it comes from a place of i'd like to say good intentions and i think that in the early stages it probably was a good policy to have to ensure that you know minorities are represented in different parts of singapore but i think that we have reached a point in singapore where in society where it, I don't know if it's fair to say that people vote on the grounds of race anymore. Mm. If it comes to the representation of minority issues, I feel that these issues are discussed on a um, on a parliamentary level. They are not taken from... In, in a GRC, to put it simply, if a minority comes to an MP with an issue, the MP is not going to say, go and talk to your minority representative. He's yeah. going to discuss the issue anyway. Mm. When it comes to the rights and the discrimination of minorities, these are issues that a non-minority MP can also listen and, and hear about. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's going to be discussed on a parliamentary level. So as long as there are p- members of parliament who are representative, re- representatives of minorities, who are minorities, then you know we, have the, we, we cover the issue of representation. Mm. And so I don't think that... Um, the concept of having a minority member in a GRC is as relevant as it used to be. And I think now the issue has become that um, in a GRC, a common pattern we see is that candidates are fielded in a way where there will be one um, very seasoned minister or one very well-liked minister and a bunch or a few other candidates behind him who are not well-known at all, Mm. who um, may have certain attributes that people deem unfavorable, mm. but they vote for the GRC because of that one of candidate, right? So, mm. by that logic, would it be more fair to have a system of SMCs where mm. candidates, where, where you vote for the party, you're also voting for the candidate and vice versa. Yeah. And so, people don't have to choose between, you know, um, 
one super solid minister mm. and have to vote in at the same time others who you you are not familiar with at all. Mm. And I think that's a valid like a valid point to discuss. And a lot of opposition parties have also brought it up in their manifestos. Mm. And I do think that, you know, it's worth it's worth discussing this issue, lah, because, you know, I I personally it wouldn't want to vote in maybe four other candidates who have no who I know nothing about or who have not done a good job campaigning. But because I like one of the, the lead uh, candidates, mm. I have to vote in the whole team. Yeah. I don't I don't want I wouldn't like being in that position where I have to make a sacrifice or I have to make that mm. tough decision. Mm. Yeah. Okay, then Irving, right? My question for you is assuming that you know we had an opposition party, you know, like being the current uh, government or something, um what do you think about like the calling of elections like that part right mm. don't you think even they will also like try to call an election when during a time when it's favourable to them like do you think there's a way to get out of it like do you think there should be a separate board that like deals with this kind of stuff because currently I mean the government in charge is the one that's going to call for the elections and I believe no matter which party is in charge they are definitely going to try things to be favourable to them so I don't think it's more of like you know a party issue, and I think it's much more than that. And what is your say on it? Uh, I mean, we definitely can't uh, predict what the opposition would do if they were in power, because we are clearly yeah. not in that yeah. in that kind yeah, of situation. Um, but I think it's like uh, what you have rightly said that um, whenever you are in a strong position of power, you would try your best to maintain it. Uh, in a way that's favorable to you, mm. um, is it wrong? Or it, it's really just up to you to decide. And and it's it's. I think Pooja, uh, sorry, not Pooja. Vignesh has really strong convictions on mm. why it might. It, it's it's not. Um, it's something uncalled for. It's something that it's um, manipulative to say at a very um, strong. To, to give a very strong word, it would be manipulative. But I think um, it's really. Um, it's, uh, I think it's, it just boils down to how you see our how how, con- how the constitution works for us uh, at the very essence. Um, it's it's I mean Bingesh brought up the points of how you know America really expect respects the constitution, how they really um, respect their their the right to their amendment, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think they take it very seriously. I mean to the point where they're just protesting without you know masks and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um no shade there, but um, it's I, I think that is their culture, but in Singapore's culture, um, our constitution is is a reflection of um, British common law, and to the extent I mean British is in in Britain, uh, I think they are really. Um, actually, I'm not so sure about their current um, political situation, mm. so I'm not. I can't say that really well. Well read, but mm. ultimately, it's how the constitution is being framed, and whether you think it's. Um, <laughs> it's being used for advantage is something that I really um, can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, think but I, I, think, I think as a whole, we could probably say that election, the, the ELD should be a completely separate uh, department because it doesn't make sense that uh, one particular party is responsible mm. for... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you get what I mean, right? So, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... The, it only makes sense that the ELD has to be a completely separate uh, mm. separate ELD. from the Prime Minister's office. Mm. There shouldn't be any question about 
the role of the current leader of government being mm. able to manipulate the mm. like we shouldn't even be putting ourselves in that position because mm. okay. we are we we are we are at the, we have to depend on the goodwill of a leader which we can we we can't take this for granted it, mm. yes pme might be a pretty good leader as a whole but in the future we we have no guarantees of that right mm. yeah so i think that's something to think about we that's something we should be doing something about it yeah okay so moving on um let's talk about the role of social media in this election because i think it's played a huge role compared to like the previous yeah. two uh, elections so uh what is your take about it and especially with the ivan yung saga and mm. so on and so forth i think that um this this election because of the whole covid-19 situation and the restrictions in place social media was a big tool that uh parties needed to use to really reach out to voters and i think a lot of uh parties did this successfully in trying to build up their candidates personalities trying to interact with voters um mm. and also share their ideas to share more than they have you know added in the manifesto and i think that for the most part it was used um really well and i think the party that would I I would rank first in how they've used it effectively is Workers Party because they really used it to craft a profile of uh the candidates especially mm. the younger ones and they also used it as an avenue to share more about their policies to share more about their beliefs and I think that it's a very good way of reaching out to the younger generation mm. about you know uh, and and to 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 share and to show what their values are but I think the challenge also comes in when we acknowledge the fact that not every voter in singapore has access to social media or is in touch mm-hmm. with social media of course the biggest mm-hmm. uh, group of people would be our elderly our senior citizens um most of them rely on on newspapers most of them may the radio they don't have social media accounts they're not scrolling through twitter they're not scrolling through facebook so i think the challenge would be on how the parties try to bridge this gap and 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 use social media to their advantage but also make sure that they don't fall behind in other areas and reach out to the people who are not in touch with social media as well. Mm. Yeah. Vignesh. Yeah, I think as I said before I actually agree with all of you <laughs> <laughs> just points. <laughs> yeah, and uh I think actually what I'd like to comment about the general election this year is that mm. uh social media has been an opportunity for youth to be more engaged. Mm. Mm. like you see a lot of youth engagement now and yeah. you because Thank of you. social media like i won't say me <laughs> <laughs> like uh yeah there there are a lot of platforms out there mm. and uh, w- which are putting uh which are really voicing out and putting relevant ar- articles in terms of uh in terms of the general election so that's that's a great that's a great point mm. um but also uh i think in terms of uh actually handling their social media properly uh, the people is doing it really well <laughs> because i mean yeah you've seen you've mm. seen with Ivan Lim where like the the backlash that they got after after there were so many comments about uh his character and mm. i mean it's clear that mm. they haven't been really using social media as a platform to reach to their to their constituents but do Which, you think right like that whole Ivan Lim episode that saga yeah would not have taken place if there wasn't social media of course the kind of course not. 
like if this was like you know maybe two elections ago do you think such kind of a thing would have happened but maybe also i think we need to take into um account that actually people's perceptions often tend to change over time right mm-hmm. so maybe two elections ago uh you could say you could make the argument that uh, we wouldn't be really interested in uh what the character what about the character of the person rather you want to see results 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 but in this election is different because we want to see a human side to our leaders because we need our leaders to empathize with us in order mm. to be able to actually do good policy making that's a fact mm. so i i also want to point out that that seems it seems to be a change at least with the youth in the sense that we want to see our leaders be more empathetic to yeah, our causes our causes and more inclusive that that's what i would say about that and also uh regards with regards to raise our kind of thing yeah um uh, we need to address the fact that uh like there there have been the the fact that we are specifically targeting a woman of a minority race mm-hmm. and because it, it seems like now right now raisa khan seems like a liability which is not i think yeah. the fact of the matter is she's an excellent candidate but what pp has done is that they've actually essentially uh assassinated her character and they've tried to discredit her mm-hmm. when the fact of the matter is they have been much more disparaging comments made by their own party members which they refuse they refuse to to see to see the the hypocrisy mm-hmm. and like let's take for example the 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 how uh pap talked about uh dr chi sunjuan's yeah, comments right mm. i mean it's it's ridiculous that you could use uh domestic violence as an analogy what that's so out of touch mm. right and and yeah i think that that would be my take actually. but how do you think like i think social media has developed a lot of cancel culture yeah and do you think that's like really impacting you know like the raisa khan as well as you know i went in all these people what's your thing do you want to know i mean uh, to to really summarize what vignesh and puja said is really that social media is a double edged sword mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you you can use it to increase your outreach you can use it to you know increase um have um build a more positive image about your you know, party or you know, your candidate but at the same time you can see you know how it's how the negativity is 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 spread so fast uh, I, I, the, the the speed at the the rate at which um negative comments is is being transmitted is actually um i think i would say it's, it's it goes further than all the positivity and i think um it's very dangerous and um i think that this whole situation is actually the result of um, like what puja said uh, the the covid situation mm-hmm. so there's less interaction and there's a uh, increased reliance on social media mm-hmm. and i think that um really we're just ready to st- we're just starting to see the effects of social media and i think um um in the next general election it will be um, yeah. even more interesting mm-hmm. in a sense because um both both sides of um and not both sides all the parties would have um mm-hmm. know the importance of social media and you yeah. try to leverage on it as mm-hmm. much as possible so i think this election is really just starting to form up the basis of mm-hmm. um future uh, directions which the parties would take yeah i think building on to that uh cancel culture as as lisa long put it he he called it trial by internet which i think is mm-hmm. 
it's a fair term to describe it because mm. really um a lot of people are coming together to you know they it's 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 so easy to share your opinions about someone it's also so easy to find uh something that someone has said from their past like what happened with mm. Raisa Khan so I think that there is no way we are going to solve this issue. There's no way we can say, oh, we're not going to let these kind of things happen because it's inevitable. It's social yeah. media. Everything is there. Everything is there to stay. Mm. And as more elections comes, comes, social media is only going to become more influential. We're only going to see younger candidates enter, um, the, enter politics. Mm. We're only going to see younger uh, people becoming voters. It, it's, it's just it's going to become even more mm. and more influential. I think that what's important to focus on is on how candidates react to the issues mm. that come up because of social media mm. and how candidates um, show themselves and how candidates act in the face of allegations that they may receive or mm. even before they receive any allegations, how do they carry, out, carry themselves. Mm. I think um, someone who has been following the issue between Ivan Lim and Raisa Khan very closely would mm. notice that there's a very big difference in how the public is reacting towards Ivan Lim and mm. towards Raisa Khan. Mm. And one could say that it's completely different issues. But I think a big part of it is also, from what I've, I've seen, I've read, I've talked to people, is how the two of them reacted. How the yeah. two parties um, handled the situation. Mm. And honestly, the handling of the situation, I feel, carries just as much weight as the issue itself. Mm. And I think that parties need to work on how they want to deal with such situations in the future. Because... This this is just a start, like like what Irving said. Yeah. There's only more to come. There's only there might be bigger secrets that come out online in the future. Mm-hmm. So are we gonna just disqualify every candidate who has some yeah. like who has some you know secrets Secret, from the past? Yeah. Because then you know you could find anything and use it to taint someone's reputation. Mm-hmm. So what what stand are we gonna take? How are we gonna deal with this in the future? I think that's that's something that could vary from party to party, mm-hmm. but I think voters also need to decide how important. Um, what are the values that are important to you and social media can be a good tool for you to decide you know if a part uh, an individual aligns with your interests as well mm. yeah I think that you pretty much like well summarize mm. this whole mm. social media thing mm. so I think uh, we are pretty much towards the end already so uh, so can I ask like you know mm. what's your final thoughts like for you guys can give a one line or two line up about this election so what, what are your thoughts um, this, this election is definitely um, it definitely has a bigger weightage as compared mm. to the other elections not saying that the other elections are less important it's just that the situation that we have now yeah. it's, it's definitely carrying a lot of weightage and I think with that being said uh, my advice or the, the thing that I would say would be just to, to do your research and just vote wisely yes mm. yeah. I think from on my part I'm hoping to see there's only a few days left of campaigning. Yeah. And I'm hoping to see parties focus on more constructive debate about policies instead of on the issues that we've been seeing so far on on characters and about mm. Pofma, about about a bunch of stuff that has been occupying the internet. I really wish to see more um intelligent debate on the policies, policies on manifestos mm. and how we can move forward in the next few days. That's what I hope for this election, at least for the rest of the time. I think um, to sum it up, I would say holding an election at this point in time is unwise. <laughs> but since we are in that situation, mm. do your research, exercise your vote, make your vote count. Okay. I think that's quite short and sweet. So thank you, Irving, Pujah, and Vignesh for being part of this episode. And I guess with that, we have 
come to the end of this episode. Uh, so in my opinion, right, a lot of the focus regarding G twenty twenty, you know, is about getting out from COVID nineteen, which is true, of course, to a certain extent. We have to get out of this, but then you should also see it from you know the bigger picture and analyze how you know certain policies will affect us in the years to come. The once the pandemic comes to an end, I mean, it will definitely come to an end. I hope. So I think that's what we have to really look at. And of course, we definitely do not want uh, a parliament with no elected opposition members. I think that's that might be a bit unhealthy for the country. And um, I think we have to be conscious of it when you know, those people who can vote, you know, go to vote this Friday. So hope you all had a great time listening to this podcast. And until next episode, goodbye.